church. Welcome to week four of our series that we're calling The Way of Jesus. If you've been with us throughout this series so far, you know that from now until Easter, we're going to be looking at different passages in the Gospel of Mark. And the goal behind that is pretty simple. We want to become better acquainted with Jesus. Not the Jesus we imagine Him to be, not the one we want Him to be, but the real Jesus. Because Pastor Ryan's been reminding us pretty much every Sunday that it's only the real Jesus who not only has the power to challenge us, but also to comfort us and change us. So today we're going to be in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel, looking at verses 35 through 45. Again, that's Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 45. So let me just go ahead and read those on the front end, and then we'll jump into it. Here's what it says. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, being Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. So if you remember back to the first sermon in this series, Mark introduces his book. He introduces this gospel with these words. This is verse 1. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you'll remember, Pastor Ryan explained back in that sermon that the word Christ there is not a name like we often use it. It's a title. It's, It's a Greek translation of the Hebrew title, Messiah, which was a name given by the Jews to the king that God promised to send to save them. So what that means is right out of the gate in verse 1, Mark wants his readers to know Jesus is the Christ. He is this Messiah. He is this promised King. But as he continues to tell the story of Jesus, we see this really surprising pattern that Jesus himself often told people to be quiet about his actions and his identity, not to go tell others. I just read an example of that in verse 43. You probably heard it. After healing this man with leprosy, we're told that Jesus sternly charges him not to say anything to anyone. And that kind of scene happens over and over at least five or six other times throughout Mark's gospel. It's such an obvious theme that scholars have actually given it a name. They call it the messianic, as in Messiah, the messianic secret which sounds very mysterious, almost Da Vinci Code-esque. You could probably see like Tom Hanks on a movie poster with the messianic secret, right? And some scholars, some secular scholars indeed have used this theme to argue that Jesus never really claimed to be the Messiah. His disciples just made it up. And setting aside for a second the fact that there's really no evidence for that, there's lots of evidence against that, there's actually a much better answer to why Jesus would behave that way and why Mark would make it such an obvious theme in his book. And the first part of our passage today, verses 35 through 40, actually shed a lot of light on that answer. So what I want to do is just kind of a way of introduction is quickly walk you through those verses and show you why would Jesus maybe want people to be quiet 
about what he's done and who he is. So, our story today in verse 35, it begins in the city of Capernaum with Jesus rising very early in the morning to pray. And that may not seem remarkable. We would expect Jesus to pray. What's remarkable about that is the evening before this, he had spent the entire evening healing people with sicknesses and casting out demons. Just a few verses before this, we're literally told that the whole city of Capernaum showed up at his door looking for miracles. And the first thing Jesus does the next day is not sleep in, which is what I would do. It's not even perform more miracles like we might expect. He goes out alone and he prays. So right off the bat in the story, we see that Jesus has different priorities than we might expect. And that only gets clearer as we see the actions of his disciples. Look at verses 36 and 37 with me. And Simon and those who were with him, being the disciples, searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Now, the Greek word there for searched usually has a negative uh, connotation to it and, and means something more like to track down. So, think about that. The disciples literally hunted Jesus down, not to ask, are you okay? Did you get some rest? What should we do next? You can almost hear the irritation in their voices when they say, everyone's looking for you. And you have to ask, well, why are they looking for him? Because of all the miracles he did. And it's implied that they, they want more miracles, and the disciples want Jesus to give them more miracles. And it's easy for us, knowing the whole story now, to kind of roll our eyes and scoff at these silly disciples. But, but I'm definitely positive we would have the exact same kind of attitude. And I've got proof for you, which I didn't actually find until this morning. This was not part of my planned sermon. This morning, before I got here, I was scrolling through YouTube. Um, after three or four hours of weeping prayer before my sermon, I then scrolled through YouTube as one does, and, and I just saw a video by a guy named Mr. Beast. Anybody familiar with Mr. Beast? Some of you may not be. He's very popular among younger folks. Um, and I'm really not cutting on Mr. Beast. He's probably one of the least problematic um, social media influencers. But, but here was the title of the video, and this is why it caught my eye. 1,000 blind people see for the first time. That's eye-catching, right? So I had to click on it to see. Actually, I don't click on YouTube videos. I watch them in silence. You know how you can just sit there and watch them with subtitles? I don't know why I do that, but I do that. So I watched it with the subtitles for just a little bit, and here was the basic idea. Um, Mr. Beast is a multimillionaire YouTuber. He's made all this money from YouTube. And basically, he took 1,000 people that have these very serious um, vision issues, and he paid for them to have this surgery they couldn't afford, which opened up their vision, which that's amazing. I mean, thank God for people like that that would do that. Here's the question. Why not do that privately? Why post it on YouTube? And the answer is, is simple, because that drives more clicks, it drives more followers, it means more money, it means more power, it means more influence. And that's exactly the way, more or less, the disciples were thinking here. Think about it. If, if, if they believe Jesus is this Messiah, this promised King who's going to free us from our oppressors, then everything that just happened in Capernaum is looking really good. Jesus has got power, He's got fame. He's got influence. We need to keep striking while the iron is hot. Maybe, maybe we can even get an army together. There's so many people flocking to us. But Jesus has other plans. I want you to listen to his response in verse 38. And just imagine how this would have sucked the air out of the disciples' lungs. He said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Now, that's no throwaway line at the end. That's a mission statement. And what is his mission? Not to stay in this town and perform more miracles like the disciples, like the people wanted. It's to leave, go to the next towns, and do what? To preach 
the gospel. So what we see here very clearly is a difference between the way the people and the disciples understood Jesus' mission and identity and the way Jesus himself understood it. And that's one major reason why Jesus is often so secretive about his identity and his actions, because the first century Jews had wrong or at least incomplete views about what the Messiah should be like. And Jesus' miracle-working power often fed into, unintentionally fed into, that misguided narrative. So rather than allow those mistaken views about who He is and His mission to be spread far and loud, Jesus wanted to keep things quiet so that He could show and teach them who He really was and why He really came. And right here in this story, we get one of the first lessons. He's basically saying, I'm not simply a miracle worker. I came out, this is what he says, I came out to preach the gospel. But it's really not even that simple because I want you to hear the very next words Mark says, right after Jesus says, I came out to preach the gospel, we get verse 39. It says, and he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues, which is what he said he would do, and casting out demons. So he's not merely a miracle worker, but he's also not merely a traveling preacher because he keeps doing miracles. So the question then is, what kind of Messiah is Jesus exactly? He's not less than those things. He's much more than those things. You see, it's not so much that the people's vision of Jesus was too big. It's that their vision of Jesus was much too small because he wasn't just a Messiah that came to meet just our immediate worldly needs, but he's also not just a Messiah who only cared about our future eternal needs. He's a Messiah who came to meet all of our needs, which, of course, as you can tell, is the title to this teaching. And, and the next story in this passage, the story of the healing of the leper, is, is a perfect picture of exactly what that means. So, for, for the rest of our time together, I just want to walk you through that story and pull out three big truths about how Jesus is a Messiah who meets all of our needs. And here's the first big truth we're going to start with. Jesus is a Messiah who truly cares about our immediate needs. Listen to verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, you probably already know this, but just in case, the term, the term leper here is really a catch-all term for various kinds of skin diseases that existed in the first century Near East. But regardless of which specific variety this guy happened to have, they all had a common characteristic, which were visible, painful sores all over the body. So we're not talking about something that was just a nuisance or a slight blemish that might present problems in the future. This was a humiliating, disfiguring, life-altering disease that was causing this man real suffering right now. In other words, this was an obvious, immediate need. So having this need and having heard the reports about Jesus' power, he, he comes to Jesus literally begging on his knees, asking him to make him clean, in other words, to heal him. But I want you to notice how he words his request. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. In other words, I believe you have the power to meet my need. I just don't know if you're willing. And if we're honest, and I know when I search my own heart, I can feel this way sometimes, isn't this often how we feel about God, even if we don't say it out loud? I know you're powerful. I believe you're able. I'm just not sure I actually believe you care. Or maybe you're here this morning and you don't believe in the God of the Bible at all precisely because of this issue. 
Maybe, maybe you're the kind of person that could look around at the finely tuned universe or the complexity of the human mind or the, or the beauty of the created world, and you might be able to come to the conclusion that, yeah, there's probably an all-powerful being behind it, but then you look at your own suffering and suffering in the lives of the people you care about, and you come to the conclusion that if that being does indeed exist, he must not actually care about us, at least not enough to do anything about it. But that couldn't be farther from the truth, and Jesus whom the Bible says is the very image of God made flesh, he makes that clear here in the way that he responds to the leper in verses 41 through 42. Let me read them to you. It says, Jesus was moved with pity. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Now, there's two parts of Jesus' response here, two angles we can look at it that I want you to notice. First, I want you to see Jesus' emotional response. We're told that he was moved with pity, which is a fine translation, but but the Greek behind that actually literally refers to Jesus' bowels being moved, which I know is a strange thing to think about, but in, in that culture was a pretty common way of expressing deep compassion or sympathy. In our culture today, we would probably talk about our hearts being tugged. But if you think about it, the Greek phrase actually makes a lot more sense of the way we actually feel when someone's suffering truly moves us. The sight of them in pain causes us to be in pain, literally makes us sick to our stomach, not in disgust, but with this longing, this sympathy to help them. And what we hear here is that's exactly how Jesus felt. He didn't remain detached or cold or distant like we sometimes imagine God to be, like this great cosmic doctor or therapist that can't risk becoming emotionally involved with his patients. No, Jesus cared so much about this man's immediate need that he let his guard down and became emotionally vulnerable to the point that it literally led him to have physical discomfort. But we all know that it's possible to get emotional at the sight of suffering without actually being willing to help. And that's why it's important not just to look at Jesus' emotional response, but His verbal response. He doesn't just say to the leper, I can do this, be clean. Remember, that's not what the leper asked. The leper knew he could. The leper asked, are you willing? And Jesus' answer is an emphatic yes. Jesus said, I will, which sounds so simple, but the Greek behind the word will can also be translated wish, desire, choose. In other words, I don't have to heal you. I want to heal you. My heart's desire is to alleviate your suffering right here and right now because I truly care about your immediate need. And I think, now this is an opinion, but I think this is one of the reasons why Mark places this story right here because he's balancing, he's balancing out the way that the previous story ended. If you remember, The previous story was that Jesus left a town full of people in Capernaum that wanted him to stay and heal their diseases. Just ponder on that for a moment. Imagine you live in Capernaum, you wake up in the morning, and your friend's banging at the door like, you got to come meet this Jesus guy. He healed my sickness, he healed my friend's sickness, he healed my mom's sickness, He, he can heal you. And so you get up pretty excited, you go to meet him, and he's gone. He just left you there. And of course, we just talked about how Jesus didn't want to be misunderstood as, a, as just simply a miracle worker. His main mission was preaching. But, but having said that, Mark also doesn't want us to swing in the opposite direction and misunderstand Jesus as just a Messiah who cares only about our future salvation and is unmoved by our present problems, like a Messiah who's so heavenly-minded that He cares nothing about doing us any earthly good. No, what Mark is saying is that Jesus is a Messiah who actually does care about our immediate needs. 
But that leaves a big question unanswered. If Jesus really does care so much about our immediate needs, why doesn't He always meet them? Why did He leave Capernaum? Why did He say preaching the gospel was more of a priority than meeting those people's immediate needs, than meeting our needs sometimes? And the answer to that question is our next big truth I want to pull out of this. And, and, and this is a difficult one to stomach, but if you just give me a minute, I'll try to walk you through it. Jesus is a Messiah who understands and prioritizes our deepest needs. When I was 16 years old, um, my, my dad went to bed one night with heartburn, and, and knowing him, he probably popped in a couple of times. He went to bed. A few hours into the night, my mom came and woke me up and said, I need you to take him to the urgent care. He's, he's not feeling any better. And we had a car that was broken down, and me and my dad were the only one that could drive a stick, and I didn't do it well. So, so she got me up. And by the time I got into the living room, which is maybe 30 seconds or so, my dad had bent down to tie his shoe, and he couldn't get back up. He was in so much pain, he couldn't even walk out to the truck. I basically had to shoulder him out to the truck. So we get out there, and I, and I speed off to the urgent care clinic just a few minutes from our house. And I get out, and I run up, and I bang on the door, and nobody comes. They're closed. So I get back in the truck, and I speed off to the ER. I I'm 16 years old. I have no idea where I'm going. The ER is at least 20 minutes from our house. And it's kind of funny. I, I can laugh about it now, but it wasn't funny in the moment. Literally, my dad's in the seat next to me. He's clutching his chest. He's literally dying. And what he's saying to me the whole time is, slow down, Anthony. Don't run that red light, Anthony. And I'm thinking, you don't get to make the decisions this time. You know? So we get, we get to the emergency room, and long story short, he goes through emergency surgery to unblock this artery that's clogged. Obviously, he's having a heart attack, um, and he survives. But with massive heart damage that would ultimately take his life nine years later. Now, here's why I tell you that story. Because we all do the same thing my dad did. And I'm not mainly talking about medical issues here. We tend to seek relief for what we perceive to be our immediate surface-level needs that are the most obvious and the most painful in the moment while ignoring the deeper problems underneath that are harder to see but ultimately much more destructive. Can you imagine if we'd gotten to the ER and they just prescribed my dad some more Tums for his heartburn? We would say those are bad doctors. But thankfully, my dad had a good physician, one who recognized and prioritized his deeper need underneath. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. He's the good physician. Yes, we just talked about it. He cares passionately about our immediate needs, but being the very God who designed us, He understands and prioritizes our deepest needs because He knows that those are the ones that are the most truly destructive, not just to our bodies, but to our souls. So, the question then is, what are these deeper needs? And this story of the leper actually sheds some light on them, but to see them We've got to back up to the beginning of the story and dig into some of the details that I glossed over just a second ago. So, so first, remember when the leper came to Jesus, he didn't just simply ask to be healed, he asked to be made clean. And he's not just simply talking about washing dirt away. This language of clean and unclean, he's lifting it straight from the Jewish Old Testament purity laws. And according to those laws, there were certain conditions or actions that would make someone ritually unclean, which meant that that person had to isolate themselves from their community, from their family, from their friends, from the town. They had to go out in the wilderness and live in a camp of other lepers. And they also had to isolate themselves from the ritual corporate worship of God in the temple. And they had to do all of that until they were made clean. And if they touched someone else, that person then became unclean as well. 
So just think about that for a second. This man's skin disease didn't just simply cause him physical pain. It didn't just simply scar his appearance and cause him humiliation. All of that's bad. All of that's true. But deeper and ultimately more devastating and destructive than those surface-level issues, this skin disease caused a fracture in his relationship with other people and his relationship with God. He was cut off from community and cut off from worship. And those two things are such vital needs to what it, what it means to be human that being cut off from them literally caused this man to lose his identity. Notice that he's not referred to by name. He's not even called a man with leprosy. He's just simply called a leper. By having broken relationships with other people and broken relationships with God, he has ultimately become cast out and dehumanized. And and that's why Jesus' healing of this man's skin disease is amazing and powerful, but it's not really the most important part of the story. Jesus does two other things in this story that are vital to understanding the kind of Messiah that He truly is and how He meets our deeper needs. So, let me just point them out to you. First, after healing this man, I want you to hear what Jesus says to him. Verses 43 through 44, and Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, this is one of those messianic secret moments we talked about. Don't tell anyone about the miracle, except this time Jesus makes an exception. He does want him to go and show and tell the priests. So, you have to ask, why is he making this exception? Well, number one, because that's what the Old Testament law required. But here's the important part. That's what was necessary to be welcomed back into the community and back into the temple so that his broken relationships with God and his broken relationships with others could be restored. Jesus prioritized that. So, that's shocking. That's cool. That's amazing. The second thing he does here is even more surprising. We know from other stories in the Gospels that Jesus actually had the power to heal diseases with just a word of command. He didn't even have to be able to see them. He could be miles away and just speak it, and they would be healed. And yet, I want you to notice how Jesus decides to heal this man. I'm going to read verse 41 again. It says, moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Jesus stretched out his hand. This is not an accident. This was an intentional decision on Jesus' part to heal this man with his touch, a touch that was forbidden by Jewish law that would make Jesus ceremonially unclean. So, so why would Jesus do that? Here's a way to think about it. Why are crying babies not content to just see their parents' faces across the room or hear their voices on a monitor? Why, why do they need to be held and cuddled? Why, when, it, when, it, when a man and woman are in love, why are they not content to just whisper sweet nothings on the phone? Why do they long for physical intimacy? Or why, in, in the height of the COVID restrictions, why did it make so many people justifiably angry and anxious that they had to say goodbye to their dying loved ones through a window or a Zoom screen? Why, in our final moments, do we long to hold another person's hand? Here's the answer. Because the longing for the physical touch of another person is what makes us human. It reminds us that we're not just another species of animal. We're not just a a, a random bundle of cells thrown together by an uncaring universe. We're not disposable or worthless or repulsive. We are a valued and cherished part of this beautiful thing that God created called humanity. 
Physical touch is such a vital part of our lives that there's even a medical term for what happens when you go too long without it. It's called touch starvation. We don't know how long this man had leprosy, weeks, months, years, we just don't know. But for whatever length of time it was, he had been starved for human touch and because of that had begun to lose his human identity. But hear this, when Jesus, who's both fully God and fully man, when Jesus reached out and touched him, he reconnected him with humanity and with God. He rehumanized him. And you might hear all those things and say those are pretty cool insights, but why does any of that matter for you and for me? Because Jesus' miracle stories, these miracles that are recorded in the gospel, aren't merely or mainly meant to just relay stories of His power. He can heal people. He can do exorcisms. That's true, but they're meant to do more than that. That's why John in his gospel actually calls Jesus' miracles signs. What do signs do? They, they point us. Jesus' miracles are pointers to deeper truths. So then, what truth, what deeper truth is this miracle pointing us to? Here's the answer, that you and I are all lepers. We may not have a skin disease, but we do have a sickness called sin. And according to Scripture, that sickness, the moment it entered humanity, has broken our relationship with other humans and broken our relationship with God. And those happen to be the two vital needs that God wired into us when He made us human. And so the result is the more that we are cut off from those two things, the more we are dehumanized, the more we lose our identities. And that's exactly why when you look around our culture that this concept of identity is such a hot topic right now. And just fair warning, I feel like I'm going to say identity a lot in the next 30 seconds, so you're just going to have to bear with me. In 2015, this is how much a hot topic this is. In 2015, Dictionary.com chose identity as their word of the year. And here's how the CEO explained the decision. He said, quote, our data indicated a growing interest in words related to identity as people encountered new terms throughout the year based on events tied to gender, sexuality, race, and other key issues, end quote. Why is there such a growing interest in identity? Because we are in the middle, as a culture, we are in the middle of an identity crisis. We are grasping at any label we can find to figure out who we are because we've forgotten who we are as humans because we've been cutting ourselves off from the two things that make us human. Let me just throw out a couple statistics to make that point. Starting in 2014, Americans have gradually been spending more time alone than they ever have in the past 20 years. That also happens to coincide with the, with the rise of smartphones. Do with that as you will. Here's a second statistic. Church membership has been on a steady decline since the year 2000, and in 2020, it went below 50% for the first time ever. When we cut ourselves off from community, and when we cut ourselves off from true worship, it always leads to an identity crisis. Why? Because we were not designed to create our own identities. We were designed to discover the identity God has given us in relationship with others and in relationship with Him. And listen, the solution to this crisis isn't just simply, hey, go hang out with your friends more. Hey, join a church. All of that's great. Of course, I would encourage you to do that. But if we truly want to find our God-given human identity in healthy community and in true worship, we first need Jesus to heal the sin sickness that's at the root of it all. And that's why Jesus said, I came out to preach the gospel. 
If you were here last week, you heard Pastor Ryan say this, the gospel is not advice about what we should do to meet our needs. It is the good news about what Jesus has done to meet our needs. So that leaves us with one final question. What exactly has Jesus done to meet these needs? And that's our last big idea today. Here it is. Jesus is a Messiah who was willing to do everything it would take to meet our needs. You remember Jesus sternly charged this man, don't tell anyone. But let's look at what happened in verse 45. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. We could pull a lot of things out of those verses. Here's the main thing I want to show you here. Think about this. By healing the leper so that he could leave the wilderness and go remain in town, Jesus himself was forced to leave the town and go remain in the wilderness. Jesus allowed himself to be pushed out so that the leper could be welcomed back in, and that's a picture of the heart of the gospel. It is a foreshadowing of what it would ultimately take for Jesus to be able to meet all our needs, not just to heal our sicknesses, but to heal our sin. Just like he traded places with the leper, Jesus was going to have to trade places with all of us. If you fast forward to the end of Mark's gospel, here's what we see. Jesus is wrongfully convicted as a criminal. He's stripped of his clothes. He's mocked. He's spat upon. He's beaten to a pulp. And and then like an animal, like a beast of burden, he's made to carry his own instrument of execution out of the city into the wilderness where nailed to that cross moments before he dies, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's cut off from God. He's cut off from community. He's dehumanized just like us. I'm going to go ahead and invite the worship team to come back up while I bring this to a close. All of that brings us full circle back to where I actually started this teaching with the idea of the messianic secret. I didn't share that with you just for trivia purposes. I have a point I want to make with it. Remember, what we said about that is that throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus tries to keep his identity quiet because he knows he first needs to show people exactly what it means for him to be the Messiah. And so it's no accident that Mark finally shows Jesus explicitly telling people he's the Messiah here at the end of the story during his trial facing suffering and death. I want to read it to you in Mark chapter 14, verses 61 through 62. But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And up to this point, Jesus has been quiet about this. He's wanted others to be quiet about this. But listen now, and Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And we have to ask why, after being so secretive for so long, why did Jesus choose to publicly and boldly reveal his identity at this point in the story, at his lowest and his weakest and his most vulnerable? Because that is precisely the place, more than anywhere else, where we most clearly see the kind of Messiah that Jesus truly is. Yes, He cares about our immediate needs. Yes, He understands and prioritizes our deepest needs. But in order to be able 
to meet all of those needs. The only way He can defeat sickness, death, sin, and evil once and for all is to absorb the wrath of God that those things deserve, that we deserved on Himself. The only way to heal the sin sickness in us was to take the punishment of it on Himself. The only way to restore our humanity is to be cut off from humanity Himself. The only way to restore our relationship with God as our Father is for Him to be cut off from His Father Himself. And when that moment came to make the ultimate sacrifice, His heart's cry was not, I can't. And His heart's cry was not, I must. His heart's cry, just like He told the leper, was, I will. For the joy that is set before me, I will. So I'll just end by saying this, whatever, whatever your immediate needs are this morning, and I know people have come in here with some heavy baggage, whatever suffering you've brought in with you, you can trust that Jesus knows them better than you do, and He cares about them, even if right now it feels like He's left you behind in Capernaum, and He's nowhere to be found. What I want to tell you is He hasn't abandoned you, He hasn't forgotten about you, but whatever other purposes he might have for leaving your need unmet right now, and I don't know the, the expansive mind of God, but I can promise you this, that if you'll just submit to him and trust him, he will be at work in your life, prioritizing your deepest needs in ways that maybe you can't see right now, but in the long term will bear fruit and be worth it. And I know the question you would ask next is, how can I trust him? When the pain is so much and the burden is so heavy, how can I trust Him? And the answer is simple but profound. We just keep looking to the cross. Because when you see what He was willing to go through there to meet all of your needs, then the question really becomes, how could I not trust Him? And because of what he did there on the cross, through his death and then through his resurrection, there is coming a day where he will indeed meet every single one of your needs and more. He will exceed your expectations. He will redeem every disappointment. But until that day, what we have to do is come to him over and over again and again with faith. Even the imperfect faith of the leper that says, I know you can, I'm just not sure you care. Jesus responded to that kind of faith. And if that's all we've got, that's what he'll respond to too. We've got to come to him with faith, submit our lives to him as not just a miracle-working Messiah, not just a preaching Messiah, but as a suffering Messiah who died so that you and I can live. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, when I think about the people in this room knowing that every one of us has got something we're dealing with, it's heavy. It's really heavy. And I know a lot of times words alone just aren't enough. But I'm just asking you this morning, first and foremost, that whatever needs these people are bringing in the room today, that you would meet them. I'm, I'm asking in faith, even in perfect faith, that whatever the needs, a sickness, a broken relationship, financial, just guidance for what decisions to make, meet our people's needs. We're asking you in faith. But if you choose not to do it right now, if you choose to do it in a way we didn't really want, what I'm asking for is that you would give us the strength through your spirit to trust you. 
trust that you know our deepest needs and that you're prioritizing them. Help us to constantly be fixing our gaze on Christ and what he accomplished for us on that cross. And as we do that, by your spirit, give us the faith to rest in you, to trust in you, and to look forward to the day when you'll meet all of our needs. Until then, help us to follow you, knowing that even if you don't do everything we want or think we want right now, you will be with us through it all and you were willing to do everything it took to meet those needs. Thank you for your great love and your great compassion that you didn't remain in heaven, but you came here to feel that pain, to carry it on yourself so you could take it away. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ.